Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode here on the TCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and I bring you leading investors investing in the diverse tech landscape of India. Well, some of you may have already guessed this, but I am a little bit under the weather, so my voice will sound a little different because I'm carrying a cold. But having said that, we recorded this episode a week and a half ago when I was completely healthy, so the quality of the audio is not going to be impacted too much. So we've released this episode after almost a month. Now, we've been silently working in the background on an exciting project that we will be soon announcing at the end of the year. So that's one of the reasons why I've been busy on my end, but I'm really, really stoked to come back on the podcast here and introduce some amazing guests that I have lined up in the coming weeks. Now, having said that, today's conversation is with one very special guest, I've got Nitin Sharma of Antler India with me here on the podcast, who is the general partner at the fund. Nitin brings over a decade of experience in global venture capital, having invested in 50 plus tech startups over multiple geographies. Most recently, he was the founder of First Principles VC, a thesis-driven syndicate with a portfolio of 35 startups, including Find, which was acquired by Reliance, Onjuno, Nikki. Kutumb, Sharepost, another startup acquired by Forge, Exokine, and many others which were backed by marquee investors along with him. Nitin's investing journey has previously spanned the United States venture capital industry as well with his stint at NEA and of him being a founding team principal at Lightbox Ventures in India. So clearly, He's got this global experience with a specific focus on India over the last few years. And that is what I'm really excited about on my today's episode. I had the opportunity to sit down with him and find out about Antler's strategy and what they are trying to accomplish on the Indian soil. And most importantly, certain sectors that Nitin is incredibly bullish about, including, and for the very first time that we'll be touching on this here on the podcast, everything that's got to do with crypto investing in the country. So without further ado, let's jump into this action-packed episode and listen to what Nitin has to offer us from a VC perspective. Nitin, welcome to the podcast. You and I have been discussing to do this for a while now, and I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Akash. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to uncovering a number of things on this episode, Nitin. And, um, you know, we've discussed a bunch of topics that are very on point and and very timely as well in terms of the context of where the fund is. But before we venture into all of that, I wanted to ask two questions. Firstly, what's been your take on how the industry has unfolded in the last 18 months or so? We saw 2020 being a very difficult year in terms of both on the startup side as well as on the VC side where both sides of the table did not really know how everything was going to unfold over the course of the pandemic. And then came 2021 where we had a plethora of unicorns that kind of like popped out at the later stage, but you also had record number of funds uh, fundings that went into the early stage. How are you assessing this both internally and when you are having a conversation with your LPs, how do you have these conversations? And most importantly, how do you make sense of it? 
<laughs> all right what's a, what a great question to start this off on or oh, thanks again for having me it's a pleasure um yeah look i think if i were to summarize the last uh, the journey of the last 18 months macro not specific to antler i'll come to that part of your question um yeah i think you know we went from the world shutting down to a record year in venture um you know i i think of this as too much time and too much money in the world is what covid did the last uh, 12 to 18 months obviously the just sheer liquidity in the market has meant there's been a massive asset price inflation across asset classes and venture is no exception and certainly uh, you can see that of course every day in the headlines and the sheer pace of how quickly companies are raising and growing um so there's that which i think is largely a function of capital not fundamentals right then there's a second part which is you know interesting new things that i that i personally think of as I, as i just mentioned too much money and too much time is is you know covid unlocked this energy and innovation um because of the new circumstances people were in whether it's remote work whether it's crypto whether it's the creator economy and so you you've sort of seen the blossoming of a cup of a number of new sectors and spaces and themes right so that that's those are phenomenally new opportunities obviously much of it converging in the metaverse which i'm very excited about um then a third angle i i look at is um it's just whether all of this means that there are just more opportunities to invest in and i'm not so sure about that one so i personally for example don't think that uh, most investors should accelerate the number of investments that they're doing right it's a different thing to say that these assets are more expensive so you just have to get used to the fact that a seed deal today means something very different versus a seed deal 2 years ago but uh, what i am not so sure about is why so many investors are doubling down on the speed of deploying capital because fundamentally uh, it's not that the entrepreneur in 2021 is 2x better than the average entrepreneur in 2019 right if you think about it so you know that part confounds me and uh, and of course finally i would say it's not sustainable someday this music will stop uh, i don't know when that is i wish i was smart enough to forecast that but i think it probably will have some major correction hopefully or you know perhaps late next year or 2023 and um, i'm not so sure what the world will look like but what uh, what we are quite convinced about is that you know given the stage that we are operating in which is still the very very foundational like first stage first six months 12 months of the company in in a sense we can afford to just keep focusing on the fundamentals right we can keep focusing on is this a great founder is this a great pain point getting solved is this a large enough opportunity and that's it we we try to keep life simple uh, we have the luxury of being insulated from um, you know a lot of crazy financial and aspects of uh, valuations etc to some extent we don't really play in a you know in more than a narrow range so you know that's that's kind of my take overall is that um, you know a lot of it is a function of capital there are certainly a few completely new areas of activity and innovation and yet uh, i don't think anyone should necessarily increase their pace of deployment but that is happening and some days this will correct no you're absolutely right and i was talking to another vc based out of southeast asia who's been looking at investing in the indian market and he had to say this he said 
either one of two things can happen here either this is going to be an inflection point wherein we will end up seeing a number of other unicorns come out in the next 5 5 years or so and this is just going to be the trend going forward where we'll have a lot of investment going into the industry and we'll have a lot of liquidation come out of it as well given that a number of later stage companies might also think about exiting and giving their stakeholders more liquidation or this is definitely an anomaly and we're going to go back to next year and the year after that and roll back the dollars in terms of the investments that's going in because we perhaps see the same cycle that happened in 2016 2017ish where a lot of the money that went in investors will not take a step back and say let's see how this matures is are we finding and giving them any direction at this point and then finding them the right sort of exit strategies over the next few years which side of the table do you think you're more leaning towards are you an optimist saying this is an inflection point or are you more realistic saying you know investors will take a stance step back and say let's see how the industry plays out and we'll not see the same number of um unicorns or the uh, the number of uh, dollars that went into early stage happening again this time around next year so i'm optimistic about certain things and i'm realistic about the others i think um when you when you talk in terms of number of unicorns getting created or liquidity and ipos all of that is just a function of capital right 1 billion valuation used to mean something 2 years ago it just doesn't mean the same anymore companies can get there much faster with much smaller numbers and that is simply the function of supply of capital it is not fundamentally uh, necessarily except of course you see some real acceleration in things like cloud and saas and that's a secular trend but a lot of general froth in the market is simply a function of capital right so that will correct at some point it may not crash it will gradually correct uh, i don't think we'll go back to the old normal if you will in terms of valuations no, i think certainly there will be a, a a reset and it's quite possible that a seed round going forward is is by default a million or two million and maybe even larger um so i think you know there will be a new normal um but the the if you think of the benchmark as number of unicorns and ipos that is a function of capital is what my point is it's not a function of necessarily the companies being further along you know with some exceptions uh what i'm more optimistic about is that uh, we certainly have crossed when you mentioned inflection points i think we've crossed some inflection points and i think those are very exciting and i think those are trillion dollar opportunities i think crypto is one i think climate change is another one i think uh, areas like mental wellness is are, are also examples of that so you know covid was these things were happening and the, the there were large new massive op- areas of opportunities that were beginning to emerge and covid just catalyzed that right so uh, crypto for example we were you know i was uh, trying to i was the first we see in india to fund blockchain startups in 2017 and the world was very different it seemed like this might take 10 years it's a new internet right and you suddenly see it took 3 years or 4 years but suddenly partly because of covid but because of the liquidity in the market um you're seeing the narrative has completely changed so you have millions of people now being aware of what crypto is and going deep into it and that inflection point has come much faster right mm-hmm. so i think i'm more interested i mean when i think of inflections it is these areas that are inflections to me the rest of the market is is largely 
it's buoyant because there is a massive tide and that tide will come down and the only question is will it come down in a crash or will it come down gradually what do you think is going to happen uh it's a <laughs> i think it's going to come down uh it's going i think we will see some corrections which might surprise people it might uh, but i don't think we will see a 2001 type of crash right and i don't think we will see a 2008 type of crash but i think we will see some significant corrections it might be two or three waves of corrections but but like i mentioned earlier i think the new normal if you will will still settle significantly above what we were at uh but hey listen i i uh, you know i think it's the nature of bubbles and and crashes they're only visible in hindsight so you know one of the <laughs> one of the things i worry about is there is so much consensus opinion that because of all the excess liquidity 2022 will also be a boom year right, right. and of course for those of us in for those of us in tech we want that uh, but it's the nature of these kinds of bubbles and crashes right they they hit you when most people are not expecting them right so i don't rule out the possibility that there are some extraneous events um that that surprise us next year now how does that make you feel as a fund manager as a gp somebody who is sort of aware about all of these things is kind of optimistic about the future but also keeping a very realistic uh perspective or has a realistic perspective of how this could play out now when you're making investments at the early stage how does that change your decision making process because of course the way that the industry is right now the deals are competitive though the economics even though are not very investor friendly you're somehow forced to be part of these rounds at some points because it's it's almost yeah. like a startup game more than an investors game how are you looking at that and saying do we play this game the way that the game is unfolded and where the industry is showing that it's to be played or are you sticking by your own playbook and then saying you know what we can we can define this on our own terms and be part of rounds and not feel too bad about missing out on some really hot deals yeah it's look it's a great question it's our daily reality um so i would say that uh, one um you know if you look at my journey i've had four different phases and i would call them uh, four different innings in investing in venture investing uh ranging from one that i call the 10 to 100 phase which was a lot of series b c's at nea in the us uh to what i call the 1 to 10 phase primarily series a onwards at lightbox in india where i was part of the the founding team to uh my own portfolio called first principles in india and, and abroad uh which was the 0 to 1 phase i call it to now antler which is somewhat 0 to 1 but also minus 1 to 0 and so i think to your question i would have probably worried a lot about that if i was at later stages as i mentioned earlier being at the foundational stage basically makes your life um harder in some ways and easier in some ways mm-hmm. the the easier part is that uh we keep coming back to the same questions focusing far more on founder quality and on the size of these opportunities right and everything else we know is 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 tbd and frankly you can over analyze and still fail so now of course the question is aren't isn't there craziness at that pre-seed stage yes there is right uh we have one we are also in the phase of scaling and setting up and scaling antler india so 
I think we've, we've focused on a lot on getting the right people in our team, over delivering for the founders we've already backed and creating the infrastructure for our expansion, whether it's the fund and you know resources, et cetera. So I think to some extent, we've also been not playing the deal flow game. I, I think we, we like to say that we are in the company creation game, not the deal flow game. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's a very important distinction, uh, which basically means that we are not dying to join party rounds. And nothing wrong with that. It's just not our cup of tea at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have want to have a very different relationship with the founder, be their first institutional investor, mm-hmm. have a somewhat decent skin in the game in terms of cap table, mm-hmm. and really feel like we have played some role in catalyzing their journey in the first six to 12 months and really bring to the table the power of the Antler network and, uh, and, and the community of founders that we are creating, right? So it's a different proposition. Um, it is not the same proposition as an angel investor or syndicate that is trying to uh, do as many, uh, you know, hot rounds. Again, I, I think that's also a great way to invest, but, you know, we have to stick to our strategy. So, yeah, I mean, we are not, we are choosing not to feel the same pressure. I also mentioned earlier that I fundamentally don't think that one should necessarily increase the pace of investing in this market. Um, so it's a little bit of my own investing belief, but also just the construct of what we are doing is antler. We are not too worried about this frothiness. We absolutely hate missing something. It's, it happens every other day, but um, you know, you you keep coming back to the fundamentals and taking a very long view of this. You know, that's also the reason why you can't overthink uh, valuations and things like that because this is a very long game. And uh, this is not about getting the fastest markup to a seed or series A. Those feel nice, but frankly, they're meaningless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, the only points those that matter is what's your scoreboard after you know six years, seven years, and 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 also importantly, what are founders saying about you? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we just try to focus on those. Those are very interesting points that you bring up because that's not something that comes across externally to most people who are traditionally either entering the industry or not from the industry. Mm. And what I mean by that is I'm talking about some LPs and um, family offices who are currently looking at the VC industry and saying, hey, this is an asset class that we want to be looking into. We haven't done that traditionally. And this is something that, of course, it's hot and everybody has made a lot of money or is making a lot of money on paper at least. And we want to be in the same game as our game ourselves. So Say perhaps you're coming across newer LPs, first-time LPs who are getting into this game. Do they get this? Or is it a very hard sort of a hand-holding process to educate them on how this long-term patient game has to be played? Or is this something that they're doing their homework? Yeah, yeah so I think things are changing quite rapidly. When I started in venture in 2007, 8, I think the... the the, the LPs in venture largely outside of Silicon Valley were few and far in between. And, you know, you had the large endowments and certainly David Swenson and the Yale model had kind of pioneered this idea of double digit value, you know, allocations to venture, right? So most LPs uh, would initially think of venture as max two, three, four, five percent of their overall portfolio and the Yale model. And, and then obviously over time, MIT and others showed that this is, 
a much more important asset class. Uh, so I think on, on one hand, what has happened is over time, the institutional you know, mindset around venture has evolved a lot. So you're seeing um, not just the large endowments with fund of funds, everybody increasing their allocation to venture. Um, and then you've kind of seen a real Cambrian explosion of sort of other types of investors who are coming into venture, right? Uh, corporates, um, smaller family offices that would never think of venture earlier, individuals, tech entrepreneurs, ex-employees of the large tech companies that have made a lot of money. So I think there is just so much, there are so many pools of people, right? Um, and especially when you're starting out, uh, you know, are, are looking at sort of a sub $50 million fund, you typically don't even need to convince the large institutions because, you know, they may not even meet the, you may not even meet their minimum uh, commitments, for example, in terms of how much they want to put in. So I think that uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, there is a lot more interest and maturity around venture investing, right? And then you still have a lot of new people who are coming in. And in, in a place like India, for example, that's where you see the contrast because, you know, the US has had 30, 40 years of venture as an asset class. And you see India and you have a lot of traditional family businesses and HNIs and, uh, you know, who are very intrigued and they've seen recently the, the Nikas and Zomatos and PTMs and issuances and, you know, they're all waking up to it, right? They're realizing that they have not had exposure to this, the whole tech product startup ecosystem. Their only ways to access quote unquote technology has largely been IT services stocks. And, you know, those are not the highest growth, highest margin, highest valuation tech businesses, right? So they are very hungry for exposure to this asset class. And then you also, I think the part that is missing is sort of India, government entities, Indian corporates, uh, you know, pension funds, those guys not fully coming into this yet. I think that's also going to happen soon. But then the question then becomes within the people who invest in venture, right? If you ask me specifically, um, we operate at a very specific part of that venture cycle. We are pre-seed. So um, there are still a lot of investors who find that to be both exciting, but also scary because they they, they sort of don't know how to evaluate things without a lot of data. And if anything, the one thing that I have tried to learn over the last 12 years is making decisions with very little data, right? 60% of bets I made as an angel or as, as I call my portfolio first principles were when the founder just had a deck and that's it, right? And so it's something that I've just done for some time now. And so right. I think when they realize that you have that track record, and you're able to come up with theses and pick spaces one or two years before they become hot, then yeah. that builds a lot of conviction. So how important is it for you as an investor? Let's, let's take the angel hat on just for a minute. How important is it for you as an investor to have some sort of practice and playbook that you've already built in before you write your first angel check? I'm sure... With your case, it's a little different because you had already been a VC before you became an angel, which typically happens the other way around for, for most people. But when you were thinking about investing in India, it might have been a different beast altogether, given the where the market was. 
And more importantly, this time you are investing your own money with a different thesis. Now, how did you look at the Indian venture ecosystem and make your bets at early stage by just looking at a pitch deck when certain sectors had not even developed or certain sectors were just on the brink of uh, evolution? How, how did you come to terms with some of your investments early stage? And perhaps when you look back on them right now, would you have taken some of the bets that you did some time ago? I'm sure there's a mix of yes and no, but I'm trying to understand what has been your learning from an angel perspective before we put on your VC hat on. Yeah, sure. It's interesting. I mean, I never saw my journey like that. Actually, it all was, um, it, it all evolved organically. Uh, so yeah, look, with, if I focus just on India, uh, you know, I spent three and a half years as part of the founding team at Lightbox, which was a great learning experience. Uh, so that gave me a lot of grounding in terms of operating in India and what all unlearning has, you know, what all you have to unlearn when you come back from the US, for example, you realize, uh, you know, the founders grit matters a lot more in a place like India. There is a lot more friction in everything from team creation to fundraising to, you know, doing business. It's easier to earn a dollar in the US than a rupee from a customer in India. You know, you appreciate all this, right? So you become very crude into the founder persona that you think can succeed in India. And of course you will be wrong in a lot of cases, but you develop that intuition for a kind of founder that can, uh, that can thrive and create something big and, you know, and has the staying power because a lot of the times if you see in India, success actually comes down a lot more to your staying power. If you just survive the first five, six years, many a times you end up being one of the few survivors and, and then you reap the rewards. Right? If you look back at all the Indian IPOs or, or tech successes, you kind of could argue similarly, whether it's a Flipkart or Make My Trip or ATM, et cetera, right? Staying power, grit, walking through walls, perseverance, not taking no for an answer, knowing how to do that at the same time that you can create a great product, right? So. I think a lot of my, my pattern recognition came from working with founders at Lightbox, for example, and through that process, you know, meeting a lot of people, but um, the other part, right? So if you think about, and after that, when I went to sort of um, try my hand or, or organically start doing angel investing, again, I was very focused on the founder, which I just covered, right? Um, frankly, apart from that, I just put on, um, you know, the hat of look, you know, thinking about what are inevitable things in the future, right? What might take a little bit of time, but it eventually will be inevitable. So for example, um, I mean, I wasn't a genius to figure this out, but the moment Geo came and 2016 onwards, you started to see uh, real numbers where Geo scale was becoming very real, uh, made me think that, listen, for the last three or four years, I had seen a lot of things in Agri and I had seen a lot of things around SMBs. And every time one big issue was adoption was slower, data costs were high, connectivity was poor, people would not pay for these services. These were the things, right? For the time as that light box, we never invested in something focused on agri, et cetera, for good reasons. With Geo, I felt that would change. So suddenly millions of farmers would become digital customers, not just users, but they will transact digitally. So I made a small angel investment in Gramophone. At the same time, uh, I figured that small businesses will now move on to figuring out their finance and accounting online. It's inevitable. I made a bet in a company called Vyapar, and these both have done well. Um, and similarly, 
you know many more examples of uh, you know later on it felt like some uh, disruption in healthcare insurance has to happen right it's inevitable um, and i made a bet on something called clinic which is a very unique model of combining insurance and primary care in one go um, and uh, yeah and and you know a, a very interesting thing happened where 2000 i think last year at some point i started to think about okay what's next so geo has now brought millions hundreds of millions of these people and now they will need the next experience they are all on whatsapp and youtube but what's next and then you start to think okay maybe they will want their own communities maybe they'll want the reddit experience in their own language maybe they'll want the the discord or twitch experience right what is the next layer and so i happened to be very lucky i connected with the founder and in a call or two decided and told the first commitment uh, made the first commitment to a company called putum which in the matter of a year has gone from zero to you know fairly sizable valuation and and the likes of tiger and dst and sequoia backing it right so i think i i like to think of what is it that will be inevitable and where can you be one or two years ahead before the market takes off in a big way this happened with me in edtech in the us this happened with me in with d2c brands when i started at lightbox it happened in the cases i just gave you it happened in a big way in blockchain crypto same thing 2017 i was looking around and saying this is too big to ignore india will be a laboratory and a place to build interesting projects so that's it keep it simple i i found a couple of guys one uh, company called mudrex another called on juno and that's how my journey in crypto started so you know i think long story short focusing on the founder and focusing on the inevitabilities in terms of pain points that have to be solved Let me double down and ask you a follow-up question based on on what you just mentioned. Now, here in this case, do you look at global trends to build your conviction, or are you looking at something else, an indicator within the Indian ecosystem saying, "Hey, the founders are looking towards the West and taking inspiration and building something, and the market may may be ready for it in about four five years time, and therefore I need to start looking at it." How do you think about your own personal um intuition and conviction when it comes to taking bets on founders keeping 3 4 years in mind in sectors that haven't even really like broken out it's a great question look i think at the end of the day our styles are shaped by our own experiences so you know i happened to spend the first 15 years of my life in india then i spent the next 15 years abroad and then i came back um uh, so i've just had this uh, interesting journey which makes me i think more inclined towards certain types of founders and certain types of businesses right so you picked up on this point of building in india for the world and i think that's <clears throat> i think that's certainly <coughs> excuse me an area that uh, that i am personally but more importantly we as antler are doubling down on um, partly also because of the antler global network so one of the best things we can do for a founder is If, that we invest in is actually to plug them into the 16 geographies that we are in and uh, so yeah akash i think um, if i use that as a theme building in india for the world i think uh, that certainly gives me one lens um, i like to think of it as you know version 1.0 was it services version 2.0 was companies like freshworks which really built massive saas businesses over time and largely focused on you know a cost element initially and and a existing category which could be disrupted with a lower cost service in india 
of course, over time, they did many other things in terms of innovation and quality. But, you know, that was the thesis, right? The version 3.0 of this building in India for the world is things like dev tools with Postman and the likes of those. But what we are seeing at Antler now is what we call version 4.0, which is you're going to see many new types of things created in India for the world. Um, EdTech, FinTech, uh, one of the, my investments, a company called Onjuno was able to launch a regulated neobank in the US while the entire team was sitting in India, right? And you can do this kind of stuff today because of APIs and banking partnerships, right? So the infrastructure has evolved so much. Um, EdTech, of course, India being a, um, a, you know, a provider of teaching for the rest of the world, whether it's things like Baidu's White Hat Junior or, you know, other types of ed tech marketplaces, um, you know, health tech, uh, ultra human, right? Those kinds of examples or, or you know, I've, I've seeded a, a yoga venture that's trying to take yoga from India. So I think there are many consumer categories also now, not just enterprise SaaS, right? Uh, where this, and then crypto, right? Crypto is probably the biggest example of this where Indian developers can shape the future of Web3. So I think that uh, this kind of stuff certainly is my, is, is the most exciting area for me because I'm able to connect the dots in terms of the talent and ideas in India with sort of customer behavior and the realities of markets abroad as well. Um, but outside of that, you know, it's not to say that one cannot look at things that are purely domestic in scope. I mean, I try to learn a lot, frankly, I try to unlearn what I have learned before. And I think it goes back to the same thing, right? Once you feel conviction about a founder, that's 80% of the game at early stage investing. Their business plans will change, their markets will change, but sometimes it's just about backing the founder. Um, this The follow-up question here is going to be more from a personal basis and not keeping the audience in mind. So very selfishly, I'm going to ask you because this is something I've struggled with and I've kind of noticed that about myself. Now, you talked about learning and evolving as an investor yourself, but how difficult or easy has it been for you in that whole process to leave your biases at the door or leave your learnings at the door when you're looking at specific deals? Because it's 10 years, 15 years of knowing and doing things a certain way versus then overnight changing it, which is not, which is not going to happen. So do you wait for that yeah. investment for you to then say, let me see how this plays out before I make my next investment and therefore then grow my conviction? Or is it more about, hey, you know what? I believe that this is what it's going to be. And therefore I'm just going to make the next set of investments based on this thesis that I have. And then we'll see what happens in year two. How do, how do you think about it when you're trying to like uh, unlearn something that you already know and more importantly, leaving your biases at the door, how do you evaluate those things? It's a great question. I don't know if I've given it enough thought. Um, I think I think it's the latter, Akash, in my case at least. Uh, uh, and, and primarily because one would wish that you have the chance to play out your thesis and then, then make the next investment. But but that's not actually how the world of early stage tech works, right? Because to really know if something, that, that's what I was pointing at earlier, right? Uh, it's not the initial false signals sometimes of success that matter, right? Just because somebody else marks up your valuation by doing a series A or series B, um, that's nice. That is some validation, but that does not answer whether you actually end up seeing a very large outcome in the end. Right. And so these things take five, seven, 10 years to play out which means that you frankly don't have the luxury of looking at data and learning in that sense, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what you end up doing is 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 um, just keep keep uh, keep making more bets, and in each case, try to go back to whatever you have learned so far about the n minus one bets you have made, mm-hmm. right? Before you make the nth bet, right. um, and uh, and I think that that's why we see is a pattern recognition business, right? It is it's it's more art sometimes than science and it's also an apprenticeship business right that's why uh, it's highly recommended a lot of young people just shadow someone for some time right and, yeah. and learn from that experience um so yeah i mean and i think that even with all that sometimes you have to still not take your own learnings too seriously because the world also keeps changing at the same time i was right? just about to say that because even if yeah. you shadow somebody for a while Yeah, who knows what the industry is going to look three years, four years from now? It's going to be completely exactly. different, and all of your learnings can perhaps, you know, you look back and be like, "Hey, wait, does that make sense in today's world in twenty twenty six? Maybe not." <laughs> and 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 when and I hate that cliched uh, paradigm shift, but let's use that because <laughs> uh, when paradigm shifts happen, then all of this goes out the window. Crypto being a great example, right? Right. Every single conventional investor has to go through almost a year of. learning or yeah. unlearning i guess to understand how to even play in crypto right. and why is it that tokens are so valuable why is it that communities and narratives matter so much why is it that people are paying millions of dollars for this jpeg right so when the world shifts in fundamental ways you you can't even rely much on your paradigm right that's why the most important quality i guess and we see is just curiosity and adaptability right you keep mm-hmm. um or of course the other way to play the game is to figure out the one thing that you really really good at and stick to it and i think um you know one of the things that happens in a very deep market like let's say the us is that you can actually play that game so for example you could be passionate about cyber security right Sitting in the U.S., you could actually make a whole career by just investing in cybersecurity because there are enough uh, great deals and enough great exits every year, and you could just be good at that one thing. Uh, but if you are in markets which are far more dynamic, far more evolving, like the, like India, yeah, um, one, the market's not deep enough to be specialists in any one thing. Mm-hmm. For a while, that will be the case. Uh, and two, the market is too dynamic, so you you constantly feel like you have to. look at what's changing what's next right and certainly you get caught in the noise you get caught in the fomo as well by the way mm-hmm. so you know everyone ends up um, doing a lot of different things and yeah like we just discussed i think then you just have to keep moving and you can't overthink this that is so true i mean um, this is something i give myself i i i one i give myself a little bit of benefit of doubt and two i spend quite an amount of time just trying to understand my short career in vc which has been 5 years and trying to just look back and say what have i learned what am i learning some of it just doesn't make sense at the end of the day you know like you and i discussed i look back and i'm like hey this was not how i feel maybe a year and a half ago and do i still want to continue feeling the same way and and, and keep keep investing in the same space and look for companies or do i want to like quickly evolve and see whether where the market is headed and also look at what some of my colleagues are doing it's it's also very easy for you to get swayed by signals or quote unquote signals because you never really know what signals here really typically mean and you're looking at certain i'm looking at india it's a different sort of a signal you're looking at the us it's a different sort of a signal 
And with cross-border investing, you typically get lost as well, which is something that I'm sure you have a lot of experience with as well. So when yeah. you're looking at it, and I think previously you mentioned this as well, and I think I came across this in one of the articles and interviews that you gave, where you mentioned uh, that you are thinking in terms of themes instead of sector silos for India specifically. Um, and you mentioned that in the beginning of the episode as well, where you're looking at sectors and I think you mentioned mental health, which kind of falls into the wellness space. you talked about productivity, yeah. you talked about decentralization, uh, which are themes that can then span out multiple sectors because thematically right. it's easy to like then, you know, enter uh, different sectors than, you know, being there more sector focused. Now, when you're thinking about it from an Antler perspective, is the focus going to be on global products since it's been brought up quite a few times or is Antler focused on developing the VC ecosystem within India? Or is the focus on expanding the ecosystem globally, if that kind of makes sense? You know, are you building from India for the globe or are you trying to build for India, from India, within India, with all resources within within the, yeah. within the country? Yeah, so I think the way I would describe it is our first goal in India is to fill what we see is a big gap, which is institutionalizing pre-seed. Mm -hmm. So... I have a lot of friends who are angels and syndicates and with other micro VCs, I have a lot of respect for them. And I think at the same time, uh, what the ecosystem is missing is, 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 is a global platform mm -hmm. that is playing in that pre-seed stage in a concerted way, in a focused way, mm -hmm. where it's not one of 10 things we do, it's the only thing we do. Right. And that takes a lot of discipline, right? Because you're, you're choosing to not be distracted by a lot of things at various stages, etc. Mm -hmm. So now over time, we may expand the scope. But for now, the first thing, just like thinking like a startup, right? We don't want to think like a fund. We want to think like a startup. What, do you, what does a startup do? What do we tell people all the time to do? Is to find your PMF mm -hmm. and then scale from there. And so I think what we have realized by talking to a lot of founders, because again, the same principle, learn from your customers all the time. Uh, we talked to a lot of founders and we felt that there were two big gaps within what I described. One is that there has not been a global institution that's playing with a combination of senior leadership, uh, a team of entrepreneurs. So it's not just about Rajiv and me. Rajiv, my co-founder, was earlier the founder of Urban Ladder. He brings a very rich operating background. And, uh, but it's not just about Rajiv and me. We're very clear about that. It's about our entire team and most of our team, almost everyone has been a founder before. So when someone works with us, they work with at least 10 people who have been founders. So as an institution, play early, um, senior leadership, follow on capital. Mm -hmm. The reason we are raising a sizable fund is because we want to have sizable follow on capital, not just because as an early stage founder, if your investors are able to take a life cycle view and grow with you and invest more capital that makes your life easier and gives you a lot more comfort and visibility. Um, so, and then finally, the final piece of this is the global network, which is where you think your question was very focused on that. So right. we, we do not restrict ourselves to things which are going global from India. We think that is something where we are particularly well suited to do, to help founders. And so that's the, that's the summary, right? The focus is on the founder journey mm -hmm. within that. Whenever a founder has global ambitions, whether it's, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what has changed is a lot of founders used to think global is something I will handle on day 
1000 right for the first three years let me just focus on india and that was the right way to do it in the in the quote unquote old world you are seeing now a because of all the things we discussed with the impact of covid this new world etc b the founders are becoming younger a lot of gen z founders right and see a lot of these new spaces which are very global on day one like crypto mm -hmm. or climate change right so you're seeing when you combine all of this you are seeing a lot of founders who want to think globally from day one because if you think and connect with right resources globally on day one you will build your product differently and you will build a team and your dna differently mm -hmm. versus trying to retrofit it three or four years later and so um, you know it's a, it's the it's a function of all of these things that I described, uh, which is what we are trying to fill that gap as well, right? So one is global bundling at the institutional in an institutional sense at the PC. The second is to enable more and more founders to go global from India. That does not mean that uh, some big part of our portfolio will be India focused or India focused for some time, right? Uh, it is just that a significant right now, I think it's about 50-60% of our portfolio is meeting that theme of going global from India. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you talk about going global and catching um, these founders and helping them think with a global perspective from day one itself. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges when you do that? Because you have seen or we have seen in the industry a bunch of um, VCs kind of encouraging this of their portfolios as well to start thinking about a global customer base. Um, and building it for a global audience from day one. And we've seen that happen in certain sectors historically in the SaaS space and the enterprise space, which has kind of made sense to, to do so. Now with yeah. this approach, um, now we are thinking about services, you're thinking about community first products, you're thinking about um, even, you know, ed tech um, consumer products, which can actually be scaled globally. What are the challenges you see as an investor in terms of thinking so diversely? especially yeah. young founders, because one, mostly if you go back and ask traditional investors, they'll say, hey, you know what, get product market fit first, think about a small market, understand your challenges, build it for a specific audience, learn from it and go out and then, you know, try and expand. That's conventionally, yeah. that's been the way that we've done, um, you know, tech, tech um, building in terms of um, certain consumer facing companies, or even for that matter, even B2B, I guess. How do you then look at it from a VC perspective and say, okay, I like the approach. I like the fact that you're looking globally, but there are going to be challenges. And those challenges are basically what these first-time founders may not have even addressed in their lives. So from, yeah. a, from, from a thesis perspective, it's great. But from a realistically and operationally perspective, it may be more harder than you imagine. So oh, well, absolutely. How do you, absolutely. It, it, how do you bring the that main challenge into the equation? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The main challenge is it's much harder than than it seems it's very easy for me to talk about this and, right. and lay out the thesis it's much harder to actually see these things flourish yeah um, but but that's what makes it interesting right mm -hmm. uh i i like things which are hard because that's what creates moats not everybody can do it mm -hmm. so i think the first i, I want to make sure that a couple of caveats are important um we do not enforce or suggest that this playbook is for everyone and like right. I said, it's not all of our portfolio. It's one significant part of our portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, second, it needs a certain kind of founder. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right that uh, 
just because uh, a founder is you know ambitious does not mean that they're well suited to create something global out of india um i think especially when you go outside enterprise the consumer world is a lot more about you know obviously understanding the consumer psychology and if you haven't even lived in a different country or worked or been educated there it's obviously extremely hard it's unfair frankly to expect you to figure it out right mm-hmm. um i think the the caveats are that you know on the flip side there are certain areas where this is quite interesting already uh, crypto is one uh you also start to recognize that some of the founders uh you know the gen z's in india are, are not that different from gen z's abroad or they i mean they are different but it's not the same gap as millennials had or um you know gen x's had right yeah so um a lot of the founders of their 24 year old in bangalore is not it may actually be more in tune with what's going on in new york than what's going on with in in hosur right mm-hmm. um so i think um, you know the, the the thesis broadly is that there are themes whether right. it's decentralization whether it's climate change whether it's wellness whether it's new types of b2c brands mm-hmm. and uh, and most of these themes have elements that are very global and uh, especially in the world of web3 etc the teams themselves will be distributed mm-hmm. so so there are these types of templates the new types of models of how companies will get created whether it's protocols in in the web3 uh, in the crypto world or um, or or other types of distributed companies that you will have an you, you know founders in india will not have any disadvantage frankly then then versus a founder starting elsewhere um so maybe it starts in those areas right maybe the thesis is actually more real just within those areas um and then you have broaden it broadening it out a little bit uh there are areas like fintech and health tech and edtech mm-hmm. where you can now see that uh it could be consumer saas for example right right could be it could be a productivity tool and you're seeing examples of indian founders having matured in terms of ux and design to a point that their products can compete with some of the best products in the world mm-hmm. right so that's the other shift that has happened and then you see other areas where there will be an advantage of from being in of being in india right so uh education and tech for example we talked about right if you actually have to create um for example stem education for example anything to do with india whether it's ayurveda yoga etc you will have some natural advantages right to so sum up i think there will be a certain types of new spaces which are global in nature to certain types of businesses which have an advantage of being from being built out of india right and uh, finally a lot of this opportunity will still be about saas to be to be fair right i think when i said we four i mean we are going to see things outside of saas but that doesn't mean that saas is not still 80% of this game so right. we've already bought some saas founders and and there you see more and more vertical saas happening right so if if the first wave of saas was was the freshworks and zoho types of companies now you are seeing vertical saas products being built out uh from india where it could be simply a matter of the fact that your cost of 
sales, support, and tech being built out of India is a fraction. And so that makes something being built out of here far more viable mm-hmm. versus somebody in the US may not even be able to try that opportunity. Right. So anyway, it's, I think it's a mix of all of the above. Got it. So it makes a lot of sense. I think what you're saying there is it has to be a playbook driven, but also very essential for you to understand how the founders are thinking about building the product themselves, which again goes back to the point that you made where you said it's founder conviction. It really comes down to the relationship you have with them. How are they thinking about building this out, keeping much more of a global perspective in mind? And I think that's where you really need to spend more time than understanding anything else is, um, you know, how much how much do you understand the founders and how much does that then align with your own personal thesis or the fund thesis? And then you can go ahead and make a decision yourself. If I could summarize that, am I, yeah. am I somewhat I accurate there? Okay. You, you're right. You're right. I think uh, it is still, yes. I mean, and even if it wasn't, if, even if you started with all the, the theme makes sense, et cetera, it still comes down to the founder, right? Right. So you're right. It does eventually a lot of it comes down to the right kind of founder. Right. I, I wanted to ask one question without it sounding too controversial here, but I see many many VCs saying founders are important. That's true. And I agree with that. One thing that perhaps India is kind of guilty compared to the other markets, which also have gone through this whole phase themselves, is when you're talking about the founder bet, people often then again taking start taking bets on very similar um, sort of founders. You know, they're not diverse set of founders. By diverse, I don't mean gender diversity i mean more from a thought and back like you know educational background diversity that's changing but it's happening at a smaller scale so when you talk about taking a founder bed are you more worried about what's the experience and how are they going to build it out or you know does the traditional stuff really matter to you as well where are they educated um you know what's 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 kind of like the brand they bring to the table and how is that really going to impact because yeah one has really like it's, it's a good benchmark. I'm not saying it's not a good benchmark. It's it's traditionally proven that somebody who's been to a certain B school or certain somebody who's been to a certain, um, you know, undergrad uh, institution has perhaps some pedigree or comes with a little bit of uh, uh, proven success, at least even if it means getting into those schools is some sort of success could be as an early sign that this person has somewhat some metal to, to, to show for themselves. But is that something that you're actively thinking about what kind of founders that you want to be investing into going forward from a fund perspective as well? Mm. I think the traditional signs of pedigree matter much less today. Right. And, uh, I think it's a mistake to, you know, overstate. Uh, uh, of course, that's to caveat being that, yes, sometimes they are part of networks which are very valuable. Right. And sometimes that does make a big difference in terms of their ability to hire, fundraise, etc. But, sure. you know, I think, uh, I mean, I think for me and then for both uh, Rajiv and me, I think, and our own team, actually, whole team, we, we try to put that in the background. Okay. And we really try to look at what this person can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things we, we did in the last, you know, we've invested in 13 founders. We had a chance to look at their trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of whether it was just getting to know them over a few weeks, um, you know, what, how do they set goals and how do they execute on them and um, how ambitious they are and how do they think about problems they run into, right? And so 
I think we try to keep all the resume noise outside of it. Okay. Uh, it is obviously the case that sometimes that exposure or being part of those networks has mm -hmm. made them better thinkers. Mm -hmm. But that's a side effect almost, right? So yeah, I mean, and 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 you know, we do value diversity. We don't. We try to do more than just pay lip service to it. Half of our investing team, investing team, not the whole team, is is women already. The five out of ten of our team members are women, and, mm -hmm. and I think um, some of our, I think three or four of our founders, founding founders, are also women. And it's um, it's it's not just gender, of course. It's more than that. You know, we're trying to. Uh, really look at a diversity of backgrounds and perspectives. So we've got, you know, Mehul, uh, founder of a startup called Codenam, who was finishing his college mm -hmm. last semester while running a YouTube channel of 150,000 people and raising money from us, right. you know, all the way to we've got someone that we funded who's coming in with 15 years of corporate experience, right? So fairly broad array of uh, experiences. Founders, right. Uh, it's really important um, for to to understand, especially at the stage that you're operating, because you kind of have that ability um, to to really define and back founders who perhaps may not get that opportunity as compared to the ones who end up, you know, making it to to a later stage. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of like wanted to like bring that out and really understand how early stage funds today are thinking about, um, you know, portfolio construction beyond just. Um, sectors that their companies operate in and also want to understand the the idea and thought process behind bringing diverse set of founders um, and is that even a conscious choice or does that just become a part of a process and I kind of get a little bit of sense that it's a bit of both uh, it's a bit of both uh, it's a bit of both and and I think it's actually one it's organically happening we're not trying to force anything or keep any numbers in mind and we and should do yeah yeah, and, and by the way, it's also happening um, in parallel. You know, it's also it's also a function of actually it's not a function of it's also nice that it's coming. Uh, the whole impetus is coming from another direction, which is that LPs are also beginning to ask these questions. Nice. So one of the one of the you know with Antler, we've we've got many funds in various countries, and uh, a lot of conversations nowadays are beginning with like, listen. We want to understand what you guys are creating, who you're funding, but we first also want to understand like what are your what are your values, what are your stances on ESG? Mm -hmm. um, how important is it? Is it like a is it something that you have a press release about, or is it something where you actively track uh, at a company in portfolio level? Yeah, and your thoughts on diversity and how are you actually putting this into action and show us the data. And so this is you know it's not just. Uh, it's it's a business priority as well. It's not just the nice thing to do. Mm. That's that's very interesting that the narrative is also coming from an LP perspective because it's a very top down approach from that from that point. You know, if it's it's kind of being asked at that level, you're also changing the perspective of fund managers, even if they've not thought about it. It's an op opportunity for them to think about it. And even one LP asking that question can actually set the ball rolling for fund managers to be thinking about it from. From uh, from there on, and I think that really is a good fundamental change that can come about in the industry. If, you know, these questions keep coming up over and over again. But uh, yeah, I mean, all great change happens when you know top down meets bottom up, right? So I think uh, that's what's happening here is that it's it's coming top down. But you know, each country, each team is also thinking about it, and you know, I think we are all conscious of the fact that 
venture is not just a way to make money or try to make money. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's about innovation and it's about um, trying to, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's really about trying to have a more positive impact. Um, and in the process that also tends to correlate with better investment returns. Right. No, I mean, this is, this is great. It's good to hear that it's, it's happening on both ends. And I think that's basically where you'll have um, some sort of a difference that they, that that's going to be made in the, in the coming few years. But in the next segment, I wanted to really focus a little bit more on crypto. Um, I know that this is for two reasons, you know, this has been something that I haven't spoken about with anybody on the podcast. And more importantly, this is something that kind of aligns with what you're looking into at this point. Um, yeah. and within the space, um, and I may not be very knowledgeable, so pardon some of my insights here, <laughs> maybe definitely not as insightful as you, but one of the things that I really wanted to understand here is from an India perspective, globally, we've kind of got a sense of, you know, the crypto wave and it's, it's gone are the days where you actually ask this question, is this even real? And is this really right. going to define the industry? We all know the answer to that question. And we have good models and companies that have kind of actually shown you that yes it's here to stay and the future is going to depend on it now from an india perspective i'm really curious to understand where we are at the development and hype cycle these are like almost two um uh questions that can go against each other head to head right where are we in the realistic development cycle of the industry and two where's the hype where are we in the hype cycle of crypto yeah it's a great question so <clears throat> Let's see how I can try to give you somewhat of a condensed answer. So I, I think one way to look at it is uh, why is this important and why is this important for India? Yeah. The simplest way I summarize it is there's a new internet being formed. Mm -hmm. and there's a new financial system being formed. So you cannot imagine two things more, two things which are bigger than that, right? Mm -hmm. So if you believe that there's a new web three and a new world of DeFi, um, and, and they will interact in very interesting ways, then this obviously seems like a very, very big opportunity. And for a country like India, uh, where all of the big successes of the last 30 years have been about leapfrogging, whether it was liberalization in 91, whether it was telco, uh, whether it was IT services back in the day, whether it was mobility and cheap data it's mm -hmm. always been about leapfrogging that's the only way india can keep up right and this might be the biggest leapfrogging story that we cannot afford to lose mm -hmm. and so if a new internet was being formed and you saw with web one and web two none of the major wealth creation happened in india or for india mm -hmm. you know the our data and our uh, assets were obviously benefiting other companies um, if there is suddenly a world where you have the ability for Indian talent to not just be employed, but actually be entrepreneurs and to shape the future of new protocols and new layers that will shape web three and should be one of the biggest opportunities we can not afford to lose. Right. So I think that's a, that's a starting point for me to say, this is very important for India. Right. And I've tried to do a lot in this uh, regard with, in terms of some policy advocacy, et cetera, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, there was a big, uh, big, uh, you know, there was a long period when, when because of extreme regulatory uncertainty, innovation was stifled from 2018 to 2020. Right. So 
despite that, we have the largest layer two on Ethereum in a, in a project called Polygon. And we have multiple exchanges, which are unicorns. Mm -hmm. And we have multiple new projects that are coming up, which are very interesting and some of the higher quality projects globally. Um, now, where are we? Hype cycle, all of that. Let me break it down in two buckets. There is the asset side of crypto and there's the application side of crypto. Mm -hmm. The asset side of crypto has, is all around the idea that uh, Bitcoin is an alternative form of store of value. Uh, people should have the ability to invest in this asset class. Uh, they should have the ability to park some of their wealth, which in ways which are not affected by monetary policy inflation. Right. So that's the whole asset side of things. Um, I think there are various, various numbers all over the place. Uh, you hear people talking about 10 crore Indians being crypto. I don't buy that. It probably is about one to two million, uh, one to two crore or 10 to 20 million Indians who are, have some level of exposure to crypto and largely with this asset side of things, they have bought a little bit of Bitcoin on exchange, let's say, but that's a start. So, you know, I think, uh, India is catching up. Um, in terms of that asset side, it's still a very small portion of the overall asset base. And uh, when you look at the other side of it, which is the application side, which frankly to me is more interesting as a, as a VC, you know, that's where the question is, what interesting developer activity is happening in India? What interesting applications are being developed on top of blockchains? And what are the new decentralized platforms that will get created, right? Where is the decentralized social media platform? Where's the decentralized Uber? And uh, this is the bigger promise of blockchain and crypto, right? Beyond money. The idea that you could use this as a substrate to decentralize a lot of different things, a lot of different use cases. There, globally, we are still to see some large applications, right? Outside of DeFi, and of course, NFT now is probably the first consumer facing application, right? So NFT is a little bit like the browser moment, the Netscape moment of web one, when suddenly something was, was like this visual graphical interface, which captured the imagination of millions of people. So that is happening with NFTs. But, but if you go back to what I was saying, core application use case wise, is India or even globally, are, you, are we seeing something real? We are yet to get there. We are yet to get to a point where there is where the usability of crypto is solved such, such that an average user can actually interact with uh, you know a crypto application right uh, but it is important that that every part of the ecosystem from the government to vcs are investing and supporting this exact stage so that these kinds of applications can be created out of India and not created only outside. And then India just ends up being a fast follower. Right. So right. in this part, the hype cycle is very real. Yeah. It is certainly overhyped and it's still for all the hyper, all the buzz around blockchain and crypto, we still don't have outside of financial asset side applications and DeFi. Mm -hmm. We still don't have large scale usage, but that is exactly why you want to support innovation there, right? You don't want to wait five years and then catch it. So anyway, I will pause there and uh, and and uh, see if you have any thoughts on that. 
I do. I wanted to understand which end of the stick should actually evolve faster. Is it the VC and the tech ecosystem in terms of the applications, or more on the regulation side? Because we also saw recently what happened with the whole um, Squid Game token experience, right? Which saw meteoric raise in about a few weeks, and then tons of investors lost millions of dollars, despite the industry's efforts like educate crypto enthusiasts. Even Indian investors ended up losing a lot of money with 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 what happened. Now, when you take a look at from a regulatory standpoint, even within India, you know, in the absence of any guidelines as such, the the um, Mobile Association of India was the only formal organization that kind of came up to set any self-regulatory code of conduct. And you know, every crypto exchange in India currently is part of um, you know uh, the Blockchain Crypto Assets Council. Now. When there is an absence and there is a little bit of hesitation coming in from, say, the RBI or the government of India, who actually has to step in and ensure that there's an ecosystem that can kind of prevail, and given that you've worked with some of the policymakers on this issue, what are the bottlenecks and what are the challenges? What are they skeptical about in terms of uh, you know formalizing or putting any frameworks here? Is it more about hey, we don't understand how this is going to play out, or is it more from you know there are a lot of challenges for us to set up something um, in ex- internally and then kind of portray it externally to to the to the audience yeah. or to the citizens and therefore it's going to take us a little bit more time for us to actually set anything in place where is the bottleneck and how can that in the short term be solved so so that's a great question so i think frontier technologies are in general very hard for traditional conventional government regulators to regulate uh, sometimes it's simply a matter of them being old and and not being the users and developers of, of these technologies uh, sometimes it's that they are used to very different timelines you know if you were regulating i don't know irrigation you know you could take a few years to figure out something but a few years is a long time in ai or blockchain or iot etc right with the pace at which the technology is moving so i think to add to that this particular area is very challenging for policymakers globally because uh, crypto and blockchain is so many different concepts together. You know, there is the financial side of it, there's the technology side of it. Um, and, uh, you know, there is really a need for some interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary body that regulates it, right? That understands the cryptographic security, uh, data privacy, you know, uh, investor protection, taxation, monetary policy, all of these implications, right? It's a very complex topic. Right. Um, so I think it's just a tough problem. And frankly, it's not just India. Every other regulator is also struggling with it. The only difference is that some other regulators took a, a very you know, facilitating approach and, and a more open-minded approach to say, let things happen. Let experimentation continue. Let innovation continue. Let startups flourish. And then we will see what we need to regulate versus some countries like China, for example, because of its system of government, or even India for some time when we were talking about a full ban, took a very, um, you know, took, a, took an approach to decelerate rather than accelerate, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which in my opinion, and many folks like Balaji, Srinivasan, et cetera, have written quite a bit about it, which was, you know, not the right call. Mm-hmm. And I think that despite that, uh, thankfully, the ecosystem has been growing quite a lot. Um, but to summarize your second part of your question, what is what are their main concerns? I think uh, there are three or four main things. One, um, at a high level, every central bank 
is figuring out what this means for monetary policy. If if a lot of citizens start holding crypto, if a lot of citizens start holding a lot of their push their their wealth in crypto mm-hmm. over time, what does it mean in terms of implications for monetary policy, foreign exchange regulations, risk of capital flight from the country? Right. Second topic is uh, money laundering and taxation. Yeah. Right? They still see this as a conduit for those kinds of activities and and a more extreme case of that is criminal financing now frankly a lot of data shows that it is not more likely than cash that crypto is used in facilitating these crimes and secondly it's far more traceable except for certain extreme cases uh, there are very sophisticated ways of actually sometimes tracking these transactions so the government should not be as worried but of course it's a process of them understanding that mm-hmm. third big area for them to be worried about is uh, is uh, investor protection which i believe is a very valid one in a country like india which is not the same realities as the us or switzerland the average investor is not exposed to many asset classes yeah and financial literacy is different and so you could have a lot of people being taken advantage of and unfortunately because there isn't clear regulation that's been happening and i'm very worried right now about the spate of advertising and uh, and and a lot of scams if, for example the squid game thing that you mentioned because you know it's it's sort of like in this gray area where people are still doing these things and getting away with it right yeah. um so yeah i mean that's a very valid concern by the government but there are better intelligent ways of tackling that than calling out for a ban for example yeah that's so true because i'm also thinking about it from a perspective of volatility of a market right now if you have an asset class that can easily be swayed by a celebrity tweet uh, yes it's it's something that obviously is not um it's it's not something that the government can then get behind you know it's something that you would want them to like think about it from a stability perspective and most economies would want to have some sort of stability with whatever asset class that it kind of introduces at scale within its own um, uh, jurisdiction and i think that's one of the things that's a bigger challenge with with respect to crypto any any sort of crypto as well is the volatility of the market and what do you feel has been you know when you speak to policy makers or when you're speaking to other vcs as well who are looking into this space how do they look at the volatility and then say is this something that you think we can regulate and if not how do we really like get our heads around it and wrap wrap ourselves around it to ensure that we are also protecting the consumer at the end of the day because we saw a lot of um um you know gen zs and millennials in in last year and this year who've just downloaded n number of crypto apps to just do crypto trading because of the pandemic they were bored and it was one way to like make fast money and because of fast money there was also dumb money that was being that was going into the ecosystem and backing these companies so it's almost like a catch 22 situation at that situation in in that uh, in that regard and how do various stakeholders who are looking at it from more of a stability perspective having these discussions and if there are any insights that you could share from any of your conversations with them that would be fantastic for our listeners also to understand how people who are on the other end are thinking about trying to solve this problem yeah so it's a good question i think that uh, there there are some who would say that uh, volatility is just the price you pay when something is very new right. so you know any new asset class any new technology there's going to be volatility mm-hmm. and i think there is some truth to that and i don't think that volatility 
volatility itself should be a reason to to ban something right um at the same time of course like you pointed out um, it's a very valid concern and especially when you mix it up with unregulated fraudulent activity it can you know especially when you go into things like you know there are lots of people who try to do scams in the name of bitcoin with creating some alternative bitcoin sounding currency or you know ethereum classic or you know not people not knowing the differences between ethereum and ethereum classic and buying the wrong one or today with nfts right a lot of uh, people who are buying nfts don't even know what they're buying <laughs> yeah. so i think um, the point though is volatility is definitely a concern but uh, at least folks like me and most i think most reasonable people have not have not argued for a complete uh, you know laissez-faire approach to this we not said that you let crypto run wild mm-hmm. uh, there, there are people who would believe that i'm not one of them I, i do think there needs to be some regulation and but but that's exactly what a lot of the exchanges wanted and it's a lot of what the uh, investors in the space also want so um you know there are mechanisms by which you can make sure that people are taking uh the right amount of risk and not more you know and i think you could you could for example um have certain limits mm-hmm. uh you know the government for example has an lrs limit for how much money you can invest outside of india you could come up with something like that for crypto mm-hmm. you could tie it to your tax returns you could say that a certain percentage could be allowed but not more and so you could you know you could just make sure that investors who are investing beyond that are understanding the risk and mm-hmm. uh, and and then uh, you know you could also have safeguards at the exchange level so that exchanges do have to do more work to educate their customers about you know the volatility and the risks involved with each currency right so if you actually come up with a uh, uh, an efficient way of not just exchange kyc but exchange reporting and uh, you know regular data gathering around things like volatility and liquidity you can actually create more trust in the system right and uh, and and i think that's that that's that's basically the extent of what i would argue right you you don't you you can create the all all that i would hope uh the regulation would do is create enough of an enabling framework where people who are entrepreneurs and developers startups can freely innovate and that could be inside a sandbox environment for example mm-hmm. and secondly within reason uh people would be able to invest in this asset class in a legitimate way by which the government could also capture the tax revenue now i know that a lot of people believe that people in crypto want to do this to evade taxes but that's a separate debate Mm-hmm. uh the point is that when you regulate it and you create these safeguards whether it's against volatility or fraud um you know to some extent the government can actually benefit a lot because they will they will have a legitimate source of tax revenue from all the gains in crypto right now i i'm i'm glad you touched upon it from a regulatory standpoint i wanted to bring the conversation back and from an investor point of view how do you as a vc build a mental model when investing in crypto and i ask this because a lot of other vcs are also thinking about it and many traditional investors today haven't really had a chance to like delve deeper into it of course it's been a sector that they've kept an open mind towards and saying hey well even if we don't understand it we understand that we don't want to like miss out on this and will perhaps hire talent to understand how the space 
works but it's different from saying and keeping an open mind and then actually backing it up with with dollars with money so when you as an investor are looking at the space what kind of new mental models are you coming up with to really drive your conviction in the space yeah i mean uh, so it's it's a it's an ongoing process you know it took me 6 to 9 months to read a lot and start doing this in 2017 um i think today there are some amazing specialist funds in especially i mean mostly outside india almost all outside india uh who have very sophisticated understanding of of uh, web3 and defi so you know i think that uh, uh this is becoming very very specialized in fact if you're not doing it 24/7 you probably should be careful <laughs> because you don't have any information edge uh, i think for me personally i'll talk about sort of the first two or three years of how i approached it and i think that those theses were still are still correct and sometimes it worked out and sometimes it will take a little bit longer um i think that uh, again kind of going back to the asset and application side of things uh you know i think in the app, asset side it's it's once you start to understand you you start to believe in okay there's a store of gold a sort sort of value thesis with bitcoin so that's one area and then you start to think of what are the picks and shovels that can enable more people to access this so you have exchanges and you have on ramps and you have supporting services around it and you can divide it again in terms of retail and users and institutional users so you'll have institutions who will try to enter crypto and they will need things like custody and security and um uh you know compliance and so you can come up with theses around what kind of companies should be funded to enable that ecosystem right mm-hmm. then you have the entire ethereum based defi ecosystem and you can also now look at things like solana and you know a couple of other chains and my personal view is that you know there are i think ethereum's network effects are very strong uh, there is some very credible inf- competition from the likes of solana but largely ethereum and layer 2s on ethereum are still very interesting and you see that um, a lot of applications are starting with that right so then you can similarly apply some of the thinking around okay what all surrounding infrastructure will need to be created and you can or you can even take a view that you will invest directly in these tokens mm-hmm. um i'm simplifying it of course in the interest of time but you know that's what's one way of looking at you know bitcoin ethereum and surrounding things on the asset side and then you can similarly start to look at the application side so there it's trickier because you should and and all of this by the way right as you can sense you have to take a global view there are parts of it where you can think about very india specific thesis like for example an on ramp in india or an exchange in india but largely 99% of it you you need to understand what's happening globally because and you need to fund things thinking that they will be global so on the application side like i was saying i think you you know the way i saw it was if a new web 3 has to be created then you will have storage computing um you know um uh, identity uh data sovereignty all of these pieces will have to be solved differently right and so then you start to think of okay who's what kind of a project could replace the aws in the decentralized world what you know will there be a need to replace a cdn in a decentralized world right and so you can kind of think about that parallel and go step by step and understand um 
whether Web3 will fundamentally be different, where it will be different, and what kind of startups will will need to exist. So, you know, and, and, and then of course, uh, uh, you know, NFTs themselves have become so interesting and DAOs, for example, have become so interesting as a theme that you can start to imagine again, what all things will be needed to fuel that economy, right? So NFTs, NFT marketplaces, great business models, you can start breaking it down, say NFT marketplaces for collectibles, for soccer, for cricket, and for, you know, so you can, you can kind of go from there, right? Once you identify this root asset and application side. I like how you spent a little bit of time in terms of condensing, um, you know, where we are as an ecosystem and more importantly, where the opportunities lay for VCs today. And as a follow-up, uh, I know we've been talking for a while now, but I'm really curious about this space because it's also an exciting period within, within India. Um, from your own personal perspective and looking at, you know, the Indian landscape in general, do you feel that there's going to be an opportunity for existing investors who can transition into the space or will vertically specialized funds actually be a clear winner? Given that India has not really had a lot of vertical specific funds, and we discussed this previously as well, is this the opportunity both from a point where we can perhaps see India becoming a dominant player in terms of company creation, but also in terms of within the VC landscape in India, a clear vertical specific VC coming out and actually owning the crypto space? Good question. Um, we want to do a lot more in this space. Um, I think that um, you will see it be very hard for most traditional investors to win in this space. They can play in this space. It'd be very hard for them to win in this space because I think this ecosystem itself is very specialized already. And um, it is that the information asymmetry is real, right? What crypto funds, deep specialist crypto funds understand versus an average investor is quite different. Um, on what, what will happen is some of the larger global platforms will certainly play a global game. And uh, we think of ourselves also doing that at the earliest stage, right? So our advantage will come from the fact that if founders in the space are trying to grow communities globally, have investors, users, talent in different countries, have distributed operations, then there's a good chance that working with a network like ours, with, which has presence in 16 different geographies, can be quite helpful to that founder, right? And, uh, and so I think some global platforms will be well suited for founders and some crypto specialist platforms will be well suited for founders uh, in this space. Everyone else, I think, will struggle uh, for a while. I mean, they could certainly come in at much later stages, but that's going to be at a obviously very different risk and reward. Um, could someone eventually very in a focused way think of a vertical India blockchain type of investing operation? Yeah, I think so. But I think we are, you know, it's, it's, it will take a little bit of time to get there. Uh, at this point, the talent is real, but a lot of the pieces are still missing, uh, including, for example, regulatory, regulatory certainty, right? It's, it's fine that we have things growing despite that, but there are a number of areas, for example, on the institutional side, which cannot even take off until there is some government acceptance, right? So, 
or even on the application side because the average person still um, you know banks for example might still have an issue with crypto um, the average person might still have an issue with knowing whether they can use crypto within India etc so I think we are a while away before we're, we're, we're a ways from sort of that place where you know the, the ecosystem will be that deep now when you are talking to your LPs as well do you feel a similar sentiment coming from there them as well wherein they are a little more open to embracing this asset class compared to where they were a few years ago or are they still on the fence about this it's a mix some are definitely still on the fence uh, might be you know who, who, who are these i mean without asking the names what kind of lps can we expect to be a little more embracing friendly than ones who are kind of you know on on a little too skeptical about this I, I think uh, some obviously funds or I mean this is not at all of course about Antler or our fund but I'm making a general statement uh, I think my sense is that folks that are linked to governments whether it's sovereign funds uh, DFIs development finance institutions um, pension funds large pools of you know with some government support and even some older corporates uh, you know, if there may be LPs in traditional funds, but they're still waking up to crypto or they may not have the ability to invest in anything touching crypto. Um, and they may be open, but they still may be unsure in terms of how the GPs are managing crypto because, you know, you have to figure out a lot of things ranging from custody, security, right? It's think about like you're holding these digital assets. You're not holding um, a, a typical sort of share certificate. And so, you know, you you have to be careful about things like insurance and custody and security, so that you don't lose millions and billions of dollars of wealth uh, in a in a hack or something. So, uh, you know, I think those are also they're they're also before they go much bigger, they also want GPs to be figuring this these things out, right? So that's one part of it. Um, but you know, outside of those, uh, generally, I think there is a lot more openness. Uh, the only caveat being that uh, at the end of the day, funds are still also subject to local regulations. So it doesn't matter if your LP is interested, you still have to be able to, you should have the mandate locally in the jurisdiction that you're in, right? So you need both to be there because if you have LP demand and you don't have, you know, appropriate, uh, your licenses and your fund licenses don't allow them, you're, you're not, you're constrained and vice versa. You know, if you, if you have uh, the ability to invest, but your LP base is not supportive, then also you're constrained. So, but I think in the next two or three years, this will change a lot. Well, um, Nathan, we can keep talking about this for a long time. And I do want <laughs> to bring you back on actually to talk crypto and everything just specifically to it with respect to this market. And I don't know if you kind of noticed this, but um, before we ho hopped on, you and I decided to talk on certain things and we never got a chance to like actually touch upon a number of those <laughs> things. And that's the beauty of this conversation when it unfolds is that you never know where it takes you. And this is really why I enjoy um, doing this. And the fact that an outline doesn't really like actually help. And I think I told you this as well, you know, the outline can only be some sort of a guiding line at some light at some point, but it actually doesn't really like pan out the way that we actually said. Um, plan this conversation and I love that and the fact that we were able to go places that we didn't talk about and the fact that uh, we were actually able to delve deeper into certain topics 
that we hadn't even discussed is what really brought out like great insights over the course of this episode and i really enjoyed learning about your own personal experience and i didn't even have a chance to like talk about the four different um you know stints that you have had at growth stage early stage seed now pre seed it's just fantastic that you've been somehow used all of that and kind of like in your answers and that has been um a huge learning experience for me as well in terms of your personal experience and how you operate as an investor yourself but i'd love to bring you on at a later stage and do a second episode where we can delve and do and talk about certain things that we obviously had outlined previously but more importantly spend some more time on crypto <laughs> no of course thank you so much and yeah the best chats are just conversations and hopefully the audience uh, listening to this will be able to piece it together so uh yeah i mean either uh, either it will make sense to them or it will confuse them more but uh, hopefully <laughs> Well, either uh, way, it's an incentive to... for them to come back and listen to the second episode. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Uh, uh, what sounds the, great? What's the best way that um, founders or people can get in touch with you? Oh, uh, that's you know, as as a <laughs> as a VC, your your doors are quite open at Twitter DMs, LinkedIn mm-hmm. messages, but or just email Nitin at Antler dot co. fantastic this was a great session uh, nitin thank you so much for your time insights and more importantly just your um openness to talk about certain things that haven't been touched upon here on the on the podcast and things that are very new and foreign to some some people within the indian vc ecosystem so really appreciate your time and i had a ball having a conversation with you thanks akash this was fun thank you so much Well that brings us to an end of another amazing episode and I had a beautiful time sitting down with Nitin and talking to him about the nuances of investing not just at the pre-seed stage and going through that whole minus 1 to 0 journey but his own personal thesis when it comes to investing in founders about most importantly certain sectors that he's bullish about such as crypto We all know that crypto has kind of been hot for quite a while now but in India over the last 12 months the space is really heated up we've got a number of founders building great companies that can really set India on a new trajectory going forward the whole buzz is on metaverse is absolutely real and this is the first time that India has the opportunity to break away from global startups and really establish its dominance when it comes to setting its place in history and i'm very very glad that we've got people like nitin out there to support founders not just from a capital perspective but also from helping shape the direction of the company i hope you all had something to take away from this episode it was packed with some great insights if you're like me and you enjoyed that please go ahead and rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform it really helps support us and most importantly help others discover the show so go ahead and do your thing So we've got some really exciting guests in the last leg of this year and I'm really excited to share them with you. So please make sure you tune back in again next week to see who we've got here on the show. And until then, continue to keep hustling everybody and have a wonderful wonderful week.